That's what I call due diligence. Well, good morning, everybody. Can I wish you all a very happy new year, or at least a happier year than the last one? Uh, we're beginning 2021, as Neville said, by looking at several key passages from the book of Ephesians, which contains some of the most amazing truths in the whole of Scripture about the cosmic and eternal plans of God. But it also gets right down to the nitty-gritty of how that should work itself out in the details of each of our lives, what it really means for how we should walk as Christians. So we're starting this morning by reading Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. If you have your Bibles with you, or feel free to just listen along if you would prefer, and the, the words will be on the screen. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one Spirit, and there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians was originally written to a young church in the ancient city of Ephesus. It was on the west coast of Asia, and it was a port city. It was prominent, it was wealthy, and its main claim to fame was the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it was a pagan place where they had a particular fascination with magic and the occult. In Acts 19, the Apostle Paul came to this city, and he preached the gospel. And God blessed his mission to the point where eventually he founded a local church. But being so prominent and so pagan, it wouldn't have been easy for these Christians to maintain their witness, and it wouldn't have been easy for this church to maintain itself for any length of time. Really, the whole system in Ephesus was working against them. Paul himself sparked a riot while he was there for spreading the truth of Jesus. It would have been a tough place for them to witness for Christ day in and day out. So a while after Paul left, around AD 62, while Paul was in prison in Rome, he wrote to them to let them know how he was. And he was also writing to them to give them a bit of a shot in the arm. He spells out in majestic detail the truths about the scope of God's redemptive work in Christ how he's reconciled all of creation to himself and to God, and how he's united people from all nations to himself and to one another in the church, how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit worked together to achieve this twofold reconciliation that changes everything for all time. Paul wanted them to raise their eyes away from their daily difficulties, and focus on the big picture, to focus on God's eternal plan, on his preeminence and his power. But Paul's message to them is also eminently practical. Because these realities are so magnificent and so wide-ranging, it makes it all the more important for Christians to live lives worthy of this amazing work in gratitude to the Lord who has redeemed them so completely. So Paul spends a lot of time talking about that, and we're going to spend these next four Sunday mornings unpacking what he says. And in our passage this morning, Paul's particular focus is on how we walk 
as believers. The passage divides up into two parts. In verses 1 to 3, he encourages us to walk in unity by our common conduct. And in verses 4 to 6, he encourages us to walk in unity by our common confession, our conduct and our confession. So after praying for their spiritual strength at the end of chapter 3, Paul urges believers to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. But what does he really mean? What is the calling that Paul is talking about? Well, he talks about their calling in the first chapter, where he says that God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We have been chosen or called from before the beginning to be holy and blameless before God. He has chosen us to be sons, to come into his family, essentially to come into the family business. His plan is that the church will become a holy temple in the Lord. Now, Paul isn't saying here that some of us were chosen and some of us weren't. When he talks about being chosen and he talks about being called, he's talking more about our purpose. And the purpose of every Christian is to be his child and his inheritance. So Paul urges us to put that amazing truth into practice. He urges us to walk worthy of that, a way of life that is appropriate to our calling and our position in the Lord Jesus, a walk that will demonstrate it and reflect it and enhance it, a walk very different from how we used to walk. There's a story that one time Alexander the Great met another man called Alexander who was a bit of a disreputable character. And he told him, either change your way of life or change your name. Paul wants us to live up to the name that we are called by. But what does that really look like? Well, before Paul says any more, he wants them to know that he's not asking them to do anything that he hasn't done himself. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy. Now, remember, while he was writing this, he was under arrest in Rome for the sake of the gospel. He is the ultimate example of worthy walking. Paul's own personal freedom and personal well-being was secondary to him, to the Lord's work. In a sense, he had bound himself so completely to God that he had essentially imprisoned himself to the Lord and to the Lord's work. He was fully sold out to God. So his urging in these first three verses have enormous power. And what he's urging them to do more than anything is to express their unity. Because all of us, Paul says, have a common calling. Throughout the letter, Paul has been emphasizing how two completely separate groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, have now become one in Jesus. But, of course, this unity and this equality equally applies to all members of the church, whoever they might be. And that unity, Paul says, is expressed in the way that we conduct ourselves. Now look at verses 1 to 3. He brings before us here a twofold attitude. Our attitude towards ourselves, he says, should be marked by humility and meekness. And our attitude to others 
should be marked with patience and bearing with one another. And the first thing he mentions is humility. And it's hard for us to appreciate just how radical an idea that really was, because humility wasn't exactly a virtue in the ancient world. In Ephesian culture, one of the most highly prized virtues was pride. Self-promotion was the name of the game. Putting yourself out ahead of everyone else and making sure that everybody knew about it. Humility made you an inherently lesser person in the eyes of society. In our Instagram culture, that's probably not too hard for us to imagine, is it? Being humble doesn't really seem to do us any favors sometimes. We can feel like we're going to end up unseen. We're going to end up forgotten about. But Paul is urging us to be completely counter-cultural, to essentially take the lowest place, to have a mindset that is totally absent of pride, to value other Christians as more significant than ourselves, to duplicate the character of our Lord. Now, he was the one in absolute first place. But of course, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for all of us. In Philippians, Paul spells out that mindset in more detail for us. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. When we serve the Lord in some way in our church, either up front or behind the scenes, we always need to keep a watch on our mindset. We always have to ask, are we thinking about how it's going to improve the way that we look? Is it for some sense of self-importance? Or are we more worried about the people that we're serving? Are we doing it so that the people of the church will be encouraged and built up and strengthened in the Lord? Are we doing it in gentleness or meekness, having a tender spirit towards others, not insisting on our own way, but considering others more significant than us? A humble and meek mindset is what allows, the Holy, with, allows us, with the Holy Spirit's help, to walk with patience towards one another. What Paul says here, bearing with one another in love. Now, the idea of patience that he's getting at here is actually the idea that someone has attacked us in some way. It's the idea that someone has hurt us. And instead of retaliating, we are to be patient and long-suffering towards that person. We are to bear with that person in love. We are to tolerate one another's shortcomings, not gritting our teeth, not grudgingly while wanting to strangle that person, but in love. And this is where things really start to get tricky at times, because 
Many of us, even in this church, have experienced the pain of being hurt by another believer. Maybe even somebody who's very close to us. Some of us might be carrying around wounds that go deep. And it can seem very twee to simply wave our hand and say, you have to be patient because they're your brother or sister. You have to bear with them because God says so. If you've experienced a hurt like that, you'll know that it's not quite that easy. And Paul isn't saying that it's that easy. But neither is it easy for God. Imagine how much harder it is for a holy and perfect God to be patient with us. To be long-suffering when we've been obstinate. When we never seem to learn our lesson. How much have we hurt him over the years? How deeply have we wounded him? And yet every time he has put his arm around us in genuine love and devotion and helped us along. Now any parents of small children will know that genuine love is the only thing that allows us to endure bad behavior with patience. It's because we truly love our children that we stick out all of the tantrums and the fights and all the rest. And it's God's genuine love for us that can make it possible for us to love each other that same way. A love that goes above and beyond the call of duty. Extravagant love and extravagant grace. Unreasonable love. Because God wants more than anything for that reconciliation that he has created in Christ to be maintained. Now, it's not our job to create it. He has done that already by the Holy Spirit. But it is our job to maintain that unity. Now, our unity can't be broken in principle, but it can be disturbed in practice. If we don't bear with one another, if we pull away instead of pulling together, then the church is never going to work. God has worked so hard to make this unity possible. It took Calvary and all that went with it to make this possible. So how hard are we working to stay united, especially in days like these? So Paul urges us to walk in unity by our conduct. And then in verses 4 to 6, he urges us to have doctrinal unity as a church. He switches from our unity of behavior to our unity of belief. If we're going to keep the unity of the Spirit, like Paul says, then we need to hold fast to the same key truths and the same key doctrines that are revealed to us in God's Word. So Paul gives us seven unities in these three verses, seven one statements. And he relates each of these unities to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First of all, he says there's one body and one spirit. The church is the body of Christ, one single body made up of many diverse members. And just like we've all got one spirit in our physical bodies that gives us life, the body of Christ also has one spirit that animates it, that who forms and sustains the church. There's not one type of church for one type of people and another church for another type of people. 
We are one body with the one spirit. Now, every church, like every group of diverse people, can sometimes be prone to cliques. One group here, another group there, and seldom the twain shall meet. And in a big church, that can happen very easily without anyone meaning to. But can I just encourage all of us, myself included, to really make an effort this new year to get to know more people in our church family. Now, that's a lot tougher to do now, obviously, with our current restrictions than it normally is. But we have prayer meetings and home groups and Bible studies on Zoom, and they can be a great starting point for making connections with the diverse range of people we have at Crescent. So there's one body and one spirit. And all of us possess one hope. The one hope that Christ has redeemed us to be with him and to be like him forever. Essentially, we are all on the same trajectory. We're all heading in the same direction. So whenever we're struggling in our faith, whenever we're struggling along this road, when we're struggling in our walk, let's help each other along. Let's look out for each other and help each other to keep going. And then Paul says our body has one head. There is one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every true believer, of course, confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. He is the head of our lives corporately and individually. There is one person alone who has a claim on us. Now, I don't know about you, but what I find so challenging at times is allowing him his rightful place as the Lord of my life. Sometimes I find it really difficult to bow my knee to him and let him have his way in my life, giving him his place in everything, in every decision. A lot of the time, if I'm completely honest, I would like to be the Lord of my own life. Sometimes I don't really want him to have a say over every little thing. But of course, that's where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? He is our Lord. He held nothing of himself back from us. But so often, I know in my own life, I hold back from him. Do we allow him to be our one Lord as individuals and as a church community? There's nothing that robs a church of its effectiveness so much as when we won't truly allow him in our lives to be our Lord. There is one Lord. And there's one faith. Now, there can't be any ambiguity whenever it comes to doctrinal biblical truth. We confess faith in the one Lord alone who saves us through the cross. We all need to be on the same page whenever it comes to key biblical truths. And I'm afraid there's no shortcuts for this. Being on the same page means that all of us have to read and study our Bibles. A strong and flourishing church is defined by God's word both in the pulpit and in the home. And there's no better time than the start of a new year to begin reading through the Bible again. Now, maybe last year, like me, you started off with great intentions, but somewhere along the way you lost track. I ended up so far behind in my Bible plan that I had to quit and start again on January 1st. And if you're the same as me, then why not just start over? 
And why not work your way through a new Bible devotional this year as well? For Christmas, I got my mum and dad the new David Gooding devotional. It's called Bringing Us to Glory. And I couldn't recommend it highly enough as a really accessible resource for focusing on God's truth. And then next, Paul says there is one baptism. Now, he's not really making a point here about the right mode of baptism. Here he's really focusing on what he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So whatever our background or ethnicity or social class, wherever we come from, whoever we are, we are all in the same body. And water baptism, which we observe here at Crescent, where a person goes under the water and rises up again, symbolizes outwardly this new inner change, this inner reality within each of us. And of course, COVID has unfortunately prevented us from having as many baptisms as we would normally have during the year. But if you're a Christian and you haven't yet taken that step, then can I encourage you to please give it serious thought? Because baptism is one of the ways that we obey Christ. And it's one of the ways that we express our unity with the Lord in public. It's part of our united confession. And it's part of the way that we show the profound spiritual union that all of us share. And then finally, in verse 6, Paul gives us the ultimate expression of everything the church is meant to reflect here on earth. He says, there is one God and Father of all. Now, there would have been many, these would have been powerful words to this pagan society in Ephesus with all of its multitude of false gods. However many religions lay claim to however many different deities, there is one God alone. And even when the world seems to be spinning out of control, like it has been these last 10 months, he is above all. He is supreme and transcendent over the church and over all of creation. He's above all and he's through all. He's omnipresent, he's sovereign, and he's in us all. He has a relationship with each of us as believers. He is our father. He loves us. He's available to us. He's not distant. He's not remote. However rough the road gets, we have a loving father in heaven who is there for each and every one of his children. By holding to these truths together, by uniting in all of these things, we maintain the unity of the Spirit and we become effective as a spiritual body. Now, I said earlier that each of the seven unities in verses four to six are linked to the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's no coincidence because the Godhead is the perfect expression of unity. Individuals, but one God working together to make us what we were meant to be. And ultimately, our unity is meant to emulate in some small way as brothers and sisters the interconnectedness and interworking of the Godhead itself. It's so that we, in our own small way, can be like the Lord himself, so that we can manifest him to a world that is desperately in need of the truth. So as we finish, we've been called to walk in unity by our conduct, 
and by our confession so that we can fulfill our purpose as a child of God in the world. Francis Schaeffer said, we cannot expect the world to believe that Jesus' claims are true or that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. So may the Lord help us all to walk together into 2021 in the unity of the Spirit. Father, we thank you that you have redeemed us and you have rescued us. We thank you, Lord, that whenever we had no hope, you gave us an eternal hope. We thank you for bringing us into your family. We thank you that we can come to you this morning and we can call you our Father. We thank you that you have an eternal plan for each of us as sons and daughters of the living God. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to walk worthy of this amazing heavenly calling, that our conduct and our confession will reflect the unity that you have worked so hard to achieve, that our unity of behavior and belief will witness powerfully to a world that is broken and lost. We thank you, Lord, for all of our blessings in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.